Introducing Wondersuite from Bluehost.com, the tool that makes WordPress wonderful for everyone. Website creation is hard, but now with Bluehost, you can answer a few simple questions about your business and goals, and the Wondersuite tools will automatically lay out your WordPress website or store in minutes. Seriously. From there, you can customize your design, pick your brand colors and add blocks, no custom theme or coding required. You'll get content suggestions that you can keep or revise. And with Yoast SEO built in, we automatically help you get found in search engines. From step-by-step guidance to suggested plugins to an AI-powered help bot, our built-in tools make WordPress wonderful for everyone. Maybe that's why Bluehost has been recommended by WordPress.org since 2005. Whether you're a beginner or a pro, you can join over 2 million Bluehost users. Go to bluehost.com wondersuite. That's bluehost.com wondersuite. This is Michael Woodward, and this is episode 72 of the JumbleThink podcast. T minus 10, 9, 8, 7, 6, 5, 4, 3, 2, 1. Welcome to the Jumble Think Podcast, a podcast focused on telling the stories of people with big dreams, just like you. Along the way, we give you some tips and ideas of how you can chase your own big idea and dream and create the world you want to live in. Our guest on today's episode is Eddie Yoon. More about Eddie in a moment. Our guest on Monday's episode is Michael Gebbin. He is the founder and CEO of Jumpstarters. He's worked with people like Tony Robbins, Pat Flynn, Tim Ferriss, and Richard Branson. It's a fun episode. We go deep into getting out of being trapped or feeling like you're in a cage, but that you can start leading the life you want to live chasing that big idea and dream. We talk about successes and failures and how you can really start creating something awesome. So make sure to check out that episode with Michael Gebbin on Monday. We believe that everyone was created for purpose and destiny. And sometimes when you have a big idea and dream, it can be scary. You may have all kinds of obstacles in your way. It could be funding, it could be fear, it could be isolation, it could be doubt and so many other obstacles that hold you back from reaching your potential. You don't have to go it alone. JumbleThink is here to help you. Drop us an email. Hello at jumblethink.com. We check every email and we respond to everyone we hear from. Can't wait to hear from you and help you on your journey to reaching that big idea. Now let's jump into today's episode with Eddie Yoon. Our guest on the podcast today is Eddie Yoon. He is a specialist in growth strategies and the founder of Eddie Would Grow. Eddie Would Grow is a think tank and advisory firm on growth strategy. He's also been a keynote speaker all over the world. And for 18 years, he was a partner at the Cambridge Group, which specializes in strategy consulting for CEOs and senior leadership in Fortune 1000 companies. He's also been featured on Harvard Business Review Inc. Magazine, and MSNBC. You can check out Eddie at eddiewoodgrow.net. Let's jump into our conversation with Eddie Yoon. I love what you're doing, so it's going to be a lot of fun to chat with you today. Thanks for joining us. Thanks, Mike. I'm super excited to be here. You are in the world of growth, which is uh, in the business world, I think what every business is looking for. We want to grow the business. We want to grow the business. We want to grow the business. How did you get into this space? Because you've been doing it for a while. Yeah, it, it was kind of by accident. So, um, I, you know, you kind of find that life is a series of accidents that <laughs> are hard to anticipate. So, yeah. like, um, I came out of college and wasn't really quite sure what I wanted to do. And a good friend of mine was saying, hey, let's try this consulting thing while, you know, we figure it out. And so I did that. And my first consulting um, uh, assignment, I was... I did the merger between Price Waterhouse and Coopers and Librand, oh, wow. which was was really interesting. And you know, as a young 21, 22 year old, it was great fun. I was traveling the world and then you know learning about professional services firms, and um, it was uh, I, I felt really good about the work, which I did for I did that project for maybe two years, and then Sarbanes Oxley happened, and they basically forced all these accounting firms to spin out consulting, and wow. I was a little like, well, what was the point of everything that I just did? <laughs> 
you know, does my life have meaning now or my career with it? And it was interesting that I had a colleague um, leave where I started out and come to Cambridge. And, you know, she knew kind of where I was, my head was at. And she said, well, why don't you try this side of consulting? It's um, strategy versus execution. So at least, you know, you're not the caboose, but you're, you'll be the, uh, the front of the train. And then secondly, it's about consumers. And so, uh, anything consumer facing, be it packaged goods like food or personal care or retail or media. And the growth side of things was really the part that I felt like was appealing. And, you know, I, I think a, because I could relate and B, like my, my parents are immigrants. And so, you know, I could at least explain to them what I was doing. They're like, well, okay, I, I'm not exactly sure what he's doing, but I understand the products and the brands that he's working with and stuff. And um, that's kind of where I've been. And it's been fun. Like um, I think a lot of consulting, uh, when you stay in it long enough, you kind of get further and further pigeonholed because that's how you, you know, can be successful is to become the world's expert in, you know, uh, distribution for, you know, pin needles and the like, which may not be that fulfilling at the end of the <laughs> right. journey. And I find that growth is like there's expertise to be developed, but it's not always the same. And so growing one thing, you know, like I, I remember um, I did two consecutive projects, one in hot dogs and one in sausages. And you would imagine that they were very similar kind of meat and buns that you grill. And they were completely different in terms wow. of how you would grow them. And I was like, wow, I'm really hooked on this. This is really cool. Uh, how does significance and purpose play into what you're doing and fulfill you in your journey? It's it's um it's a great question, Mike, because it's I'd actually written a piece about this in HBR about, um, you know, basically the, the idea that all work should have meaning and can have meaning in it. That's positive unless you're like a heroin dealer, which is not a good thing. And stuff. But I think there are <laughs> yeah. a few jobs that are universally bad. But like, yeah. um, I think for me, it was um, I lucked out because, you know, every growth strategy doesn't always result in a, you know, a really huge home run in the marketplace, even though it, it should. And that's my aspiration. But like the joy of um, when you're working with a client or a company and they are growing as a result of what you did, that's just fantastic. And like, I, I'm trying to think of like, um, whenever people come to me for business advice about should I change jobs or careers, I always say, just pick an industry that at least has a strong tailwind behind it. Because mm -hmm. It's so much fun to be part of a place that's growing and they're investing. And no matter how good your job is, it's not fun at all when it's shrinking and declining and you have to cutting costs with it there. So I think there's something inherent about um, being part of something that has momentum and growth that I think is really good at the macro level. Like that's just a fun place to be and that's fulfilling and you're creating jobs and opportunities and whatnot. Um, the second thing that I give, if I go a little more micro, is that at some level what I do is um, kind of help people see eye to eye consumers and the companies and their investors in terms of, you know, where the win, win, win is. And, and what I mean by that is, you know, th there's always uh, people assume that sales and demand are the same thing. This is another article that I'd written about. And so if I sold, you know, a um, million dollars worth of X product last year, um, that means that there's a million dollars worth of demand that's out there. And that what I find really fascinating is that sometimes that's farther from, there's nothing farther from the truth of that, right? It's, that's just what was available and I didn't like it, but I was forced to buy it and therefore it's there. Or yeah. maybe it was all right, but, um, I just have a temporary situation where I needed it and I'm not going to have it next year. So you can't rely on that going forward. And so I think at some level is helping companies understand that there are, some people for whom um, every category just means a lot more to them than the average person. It, they're not a, you know, uh, here, fly by the night consumer. They're going to be here yesterday and won't be here tomorrow. It's because they have an inherent love and passion for it and they spend behind it. And when you kind of understand the people who have passion and are really profitable, these are the folks I call super consumers, then, you know, there's a lot of kind of eye to eye connections that you can make that not only are you making somebody who's really into something much happier because you're listening to them and understand what the opportunity is, but beyond that, you're making the company and the executives much uh, more excited because they have an opportunity. It's not just about, am I going to make my numbers next quarter or not? There's a real joy that comes with, I think I have an idea of how to go forward with it versus just kind of throwing stuff against the wall. So there's kind of this joy is, um, uh, is prevalent when you're growing at the macro level. And that's what I really find meaning in. And at the very micro level, it's 
um, the level of empathy and respect that you have for another human being who cares quite a bit about the category and you're trying to make what you do better for them. There's something very personal and I think um, powerful about that as well, too. You you mentioned, you know, finding a space that's having growth, that's having kind of its breakout moment, whether that's at a, a macro or a micro level and, and how that kind of helps energize the journey. You wrote an interesting article in Inc. Magazine about fad versus like sustainable product or sustainable business and the 2020-20 rule. Can you tell us about that and what that means and how, how we can as business owners or creatives or CEOs really come in and identify when something has sustaining power versus something that just looks really cool and then all of a sudden it's gone? Yeah, no, it's um, the 2020 rule is something that um, I just kind of as I was I was thinking about um, after 18 years of doing growth strategy at the Cambridge group. And, you know, like I've just seen patterns across the clients that have driven billions of dollars worth of growth. And um, it's really kind of three things. One is um, does 20 percent of the people in the category have this unmet need? And it's you know, not a hard and fast rule, but what I find is that a lot of companies are trying to solve for everybody. And, you know, it's the age old adage of if you try to be everything to everybody, then you won't be anything to anyone. Right. And so um, 20% is, it's always been the right, you know, range of numbers where it's um, not everybody so that you actually have a point of view and it should actually turn people off in the category, right? That's, that's the hallmark of, I have an idea that is really powerful and compelling to some and a complete turn off to other people. That's not, that's a very good thing. It causes like a really deep reaction where people either love it or hate it. It's absolute. Yeah. Okay. Yes. Yeah. And, and, and I think that's, that's really, I mean, it's the whole, the opposite of passion is not hate, it's indifference, right? And that's what you're trying to avoid is indifference. And then, so the other bit is if you're too small, if you're like 2% of the market, then it's hard to be scalable at some level or hard to attract investment. I mean, like it's not to say that if you, um, have a business plan that is meant to be small and niche that it can't work. But what I find is that if you kind of look for that 20% rule, then you're in a really good spot where you have a point of view and it matters to some and is, you know, unattractive to others, but it's actually reasonably scalable that, you know, if you think about, um, you know, Apple as, you know, a hugely successful company, but also um, the fact that at one point they had only 9% of smartphone units and over 100% of the category profit. Like you don't need to be huge, right? Right. In terms of like getting everybody to have a huge business. with it. So that, that's the first 20% um, rule is that part of it there. So uh, the second thing, uh, 20 is it should be a 20 year uh, trajectory or history behind it. And what I, this is the really important part of like, is this a short term thing or will this uh, be here to last is, if you kind of take a step back from what the technology is or what the product is and you pull the lens back and say, is this something that will actually, has it been going on for some time now and will it go on going forward? And so uh, Keurig is, is a great example of this where um, I have a number of friends in the coffee category and some very big companies. Um, they're just now kind of rolling out products for Keurig, even though it's been a, a thing and a phenomenon for years, right? Right. And partly they avoided doing anything about it because they were fearful that it was a fad. Okay. And one of the things that I was able to say to folks is like, you know, you could have probably seen this eight years ago that this was a thing uh, from a couple of uh, ways. One is that, you know, super consumers of coffee were in on this early, right? And their yeah. share of throat or share of wallet, as it were, was much higher in this uh, earlier on than not. And so, you know, there are canaries in the coal mine that you can use to see that, you know, they these early adopters or however you want to call them, they're on in on it early. Or some parts of the market of the country are in on it early, right? So craft beer is another good one of, you know, people were like, oh, craft beer is going to be a thing. And it's like, <laughs> yeah. you know, it, the PAC Northwest has been on it for a while. Parts of the Northeast have been on it for a while. Like if you can see that there are some markets in your category that are, again, these early warning systems that can predict the future of the rest of the market, then that's important to note. And then the, the last bit is just this idea of, you know, um, what I bet uh, I call it the generational bet, right? Is like, is the idea of uh, coffee. I have three children, uh, nine, 11 and 13. Okay. And they're not coffee drinkers, obviously, now. But when they become adults, do I believe that they will 
you know, be using the old filtered coffee and the grounds and like, or would they be using a single source system like this? You know, I would push all the money that I have into, you know, more, my kids will not know how to make a traditional pot of coffee going forward. Right. Okay. Yeah. And that's 20 year generational demand that you feel really good about. So then when, you know, they have 20 million households now uh, in the system uh, for Keurig and there's, you know, 90 million households that have a coffee machine. You know, to me, it's not to say that Keurig is going to be the winner, but that single serve on demand coffee that has infinite variety, which a lot of what tech companies do very well, like that value proposition is not going away and that there's no way that my kids would ever settle for less. It'd be like going back to linear TV versus, you know, having Netflix and the like, like these are things that yeah. you can just bet on from a, that time period. And so when that's the, that's the middle 20 and then the last 20 is, um, I actually alluded to it earlier is, yeah, a lot of these trends and growth happen in the top 20 cities in a local uh, market oftentimes. And oh, so, okay. um, in, in that if you can actually validate it there so that like the, the two words that I hate most in business are national average, because I just think it's just, it, it peanut butters, the great nooks and crannies of data that are really valuable, which is to say that, you know, not everyone in America consumes exactly the same thing at the same way at the same time. Right. Yeah. Yeah. And that, you know, like a lot of the global companies that I work with, uh, they care so much about the nuances between a Belgium and a Luxembourg and a Parisian consumer. And yet, you know, they treat the U.S. as like, ah, oh, it's just all the same here, right? <laughs> but, you know, the local market nuances um, from Austin to Annapolis, like they're so different. And if yeah. you can see that these trends are happening at a local level, not only does it validate that it's a thing, but secondarily, it tells you very specifically where and what you should be doing, which is super powerful as well, too. But it almost sounds like with that last space there that you can even use those markers as early uh, identifiers of trends that are going forward where instead of waiting for a national growth spurt where you go, oh, single serve coffee is going to be such a, a, a big space, you could be looking at these micro economies within it. I mean, California itself is yep. a, such a significant market share of the entire U.S. you know market share that you could just look at California or L.A. or or Southern California as as indi uh, indicators for uh, nationwide growth on a product. Yes, yeah, I, I I absolutely think that's true, and that you, you raise a great point, Mike, about California. And like I, I always say that big companies um, that I've worked with over the years, you can tell kind of like. Um, like the, the investment community would do well just to see, hey, big company, do you have a California problem or not? Right. <laughs> I mean, yeah. like so many big companies have a California problem. And not only is that a sign of trouble for those companies to come, whether it's, you know, if you're a big three auto manufacturer and you go to California, you're like, wait, where are my brands here? They're not existing or big food. Um, but I think, Mike, to your same point, it's the same thing of what's growing in L.A., what's growing in the Bay Area, what's growing in uh, Santa Cruz and the like. And so this, this ability to look um, at a much more nuanced level, it actually is a pretty decisive advantage for smaller companies who are willing to be more nimble on that. But I, I think it's just the whole thing of like, if you can, I think if your back's against the wall and you got to make a quick decision, this 20-20-20 rule I find is a super helpful way to make a decision and feel good about it without having very much data or very much time at all. I want to step to, uh, step back and kind of dive a little bit deeper into something that we've we've referenced, you've referenced several times, and people might not completely understand what it means. So much of the marketing world focuses on brand strategy. Oh, what's the brand of BMW? What's the brand of McDonald's? What's the brand of Apple? And they use that as the marketing, as the positioning, as the growth strategy. Yeah. But you talk about you know, we really need to move away from a brand strategy, although brand is significant and it's part of that, but move more into a category strategy. What is category? And then how do we create strategy around it? Yeah, you know, it's it's interesting, um, uh, this, this notion of, um, you know, what have you, you know, just looking at history as what we did yesterday, the year before, or even 10 years ago, because yeah. I think that um, exactly to you, what you just said, Mike, is that, there are too many companies that I run into that 
this is the way that I would describe it. They worship at the altar of their brands and they, they believe that their brands are the end all be all. And they are a big advantage and they can be, but it's um, what I find now is that the, the basis of competition is wildly different, right? And so back in the day in the 1950s in the kind of leave it to beaver world where you had three channels and, you know, only a handful of places to shop and a limited set of choices of what you could buy, you know, there was a lot more demand than you had options to choose from. And therefore, you know, your brand mattered to some degree. But then um, in a world now where it's so much easier uh, to have choice from a consumer standpoint, or even in a B2B standpoint of like, do I go with one enterprise software or Salesforce.com or the next Salesforce.com out there? And that when you face an abundance of choice, then... Uh, brands matter less when you have perfect information like brands are really important when you didn't really have the ability to research something and you right. had to trust in the company and uh, what again with with information and reviews now uh, that uh, advantage goes away with media fragmentation it's harder to talk to people in a way that it on your terms and that um, marketing I find has kind of evolved from what I would say are, are monologues where brands would kind of shout at consumers and consumers are just kind of captive they're listening and then now with social media it's more of a duet right so they're um, consumers are talking back at, at brands on their own terms in their own ways and then thirdly um, uh, what people seem to miss is uh, this idea of what I view is the marketing of going forward and brand strategy, which should be uh, a three-way conversation. It should be um, a super consumer convincing someone who is a potential super consumer to get into the category, right? So a surfer trying to convince uh, a wannabe surfer to really go out and buy the equipment and gear and really get after it. And a brand listening in at the same time is kind of the way that I think marketing is going to evolve to, to be more effective. And the reason being is that, um, you know, so many uh, companies, um, compete more against people like Apple than you realize. Even if you're not in the smartphone or computer or laptop or tablet business, it's because a lot of um, brands have become wants versus needs. And, yeah. you know, when there, there's rumors of a $1,000 iPhone, where is that money coming from? It's going to come out of the disposable spend of people who might have gone out to eat or might have gotten a bar of chocolate or might have bought some clothing with it there, right? And that um, the, the, the things that I think are occurring is that um, really what's happening, when, when I see a brand that is not relevant anymore, in general, what I see is a category that's not really relevant is the main thing okay. is at the end of the day, yeah. right? And so, you know, Big Food um, lost $4 billion with a market share and they're spending trying to, you know, against the brands to make them more relevant again. And it's like, well, what does it matter when you see that in 2015, the lines finally crossed and consumers in America have started to spend more money eating out than eating in. Like that trend is really hard to reverse, right? Yeah. You can't do anything about that and your individual brand of cereal like that really doesn't matter if the tide is turned in a dramatic way and therefore what you have to refigure out is um you know how do you make the category more relevant and like what i what i find is from a category strategy you have kind of uh, eight different levers, four on the consumer side or value, customer side and four on the business model side. So on the consumer side, you have kind of your brand, as it were, right? Your product, um, the experience you deliver and the price. And even in that scenario, I'm like brand is just one out of four levers that you can pull to be relevant there. And on the business model side, you have, you know, the manufacturing, how you make it, distribution, how you, you know, move it, uh, marketing, how you talk to people about it. And then, you know, the profit model, how you make money. Like there's four different levers that you could pull that have nothing to do with your brand necessarily. And that the companies that are some of the biggest branded players, like what they forget is that the way they got to be dominant in the first place was through business model innovation and category innovation, right? Like a lot of these major food brands that are um, struggling to make their brands relevant, they forget that back in the day, you know, frozen foods didn't exist. And it was um, an art of food science and technology that got frozen foods and frozen distribution to the point where frozen foods were viable there with it, right? The same thing with the beer industry. The big beer uh, brands are struggling with craft beers. And they forget that back in the day, um, you know, um, it was all draft beer in barrels and then someone innovated, you know, bottles and cans. Yeah. <laughs> right. And the things that we forget that it, you talk about your role in technology is that how much um, these other levers beyond your brand really, really matter at the end of the day. Like with with Amazon, 
uh, now buying Whole Foods, you know, everyone thinks that that's going to be the thing and the Whole Food brand its brand is important. And it is. But they are investing in other food science. There's a thing called MATS, uh, microwave-assisted thermal sterilization, that uh, I can go geek out a little bit on if you want to. But basically, <laughs> it's going to change the nature of the way that food remains safe to eat for longer periods of time. It's going to exponentially increase shelf stability. And, you know, Amazon's big kind of uh, Achilles heel has been, oh, they're never going to win in grocery. You can't ship food. It's, it's perishable. Well, what happens if the perishability part of it goes away? Right. You know, what happens when, you know, now that plus drones plus the Whole Foods brands, like, you know, there's a lot scarier things that are out there um, that I think people have to deal with that no matter how good your brand is, if the category is fundamentally flawed, then you got problems that your brand can't fix. And that that's kind of why I'm kind of harping on this whole thing around the category strategy. You know, first and foremost, make sure that that's not the real problem, right? Because otherwise you're going to put a Band-Aid on a, on a amputated leg there. <laughs> yeah, well, and, and I think that raises a good uh, question because we, we've had lots of guests on. Uh, and I, I think back to different episodes and I think back to one that was in the fashion world and... Uh, she moved from making handbags to making cosmetics and, and uh, other other items in that same space, but items that weren't on a downward trajectory. And I also talked to yeah. uh, another fashion industry. Uh, and we we're talking about Amazon and the death of retail and what that means and everything like that. As, as business owners, whether it's a small business, whether it's a big corporation, how can we not get so entrenched in riding the wave till it's dead and really have the foresight to see what's coming, uh, to see where we need to make the shifts, where we need to go. Yeah. Well, this space isn't working anymore, but this is in the same realm, but the category is still growing. The category still got life in it. It's, it's got a future for the next 20 years, yeah. 40 years. How, how can businesses really start instead of seeing what's in, right in front of them, have that broader picture and foresight to know what choices they need to make? Yeah. Um, the, the two things that I would suggest that businesses do, um, one is throw out your brand plan and have a category plan. And specifically, uh, you need a vision to double your category. Um, and that sounds kind of preposterous and, you know, like, well, how am I going to make it up? Double the Kleenex market as it were. Right. Yeah. And, um, but what it really is, is it's an important thought exercise of, how, you know, if you had unlimited resources, how would you do it? Is it in fact possible, even if you had the resources that were unlimited and if you can't figure out how to do it, then why would I give you a, a single dollar right now in the first <laughs> place? Right. And yeah. so. The category doubling strategy and the plan there, it's its three levers, right? You can double the number of consumers in the category. You can double the units per consumer or you can double the price per unit or some combination of the three that are there. And you don't have to do all three, but what I'll tell you is that that exercise forces people to say, you know, is there is there life in this category yet still? You know, how would I convince someone not in the category to actually come into the category? How would I convince existing people to double their current spending on it, on it, be it units or pricing with it there? And what I find is that uh, one of a couple things happens, right, is that some people kind of say, okay, fine. I can see a whole path to non-consumers of XYZ. So like um, when Anheuser-Busch launched Bud Light Lime, you know, a lot of the you know beer hardcore people made fun of it, but it's really a, a strategy to pull people back into beer because wine and spirits have been growing and taking and are in particular are closer to 60, 40 male, female, whereas beer is more 80, 20 male, female. Yeah. And that Bud Light Lime is meant to bring back women into the category. And so it was wildly successful, half a billion dollars in year two, but also the most incremental thing that they launched because specifically it was designed to bring new people in and it had the nice benefit. It was a nice price premium as well too there right and that um if, if and if they can do it then others can as well too and so if you if you uh one outcome is you have a category doubling strategy and that's great you can go pursue it and figure out how to you know make your way there now if you can't figure it out then that's where like your your friend in the fashion industry it's like okay maybe it's time to cut bait and move on the thing that i find is that um one of the things i in my research around super consumers with uh Cambridge was part of nielsen um, and so I had access to big data there was if you were a super consumer of one category, you were a super consumer of nine others, some of which were obviously related and some of which were not. 
And that actually makes for a very nice migration category-wise into other things you could do, right? So there are, um, uh, one, one of my favorites is, uh, you know, if you are a super consumer of milk, then what else are you a super consumer of? And a, a lot of people would imagine, well, milk is dairy, dairy is healthy, and therefore you're probably eating a lot of vegetables and other healthy things that are there. And what we found was that a super consumer of milk, which is to say you were buying you know, soy milk and almond milk and organic milk, not just a lot of milk, but expensive milk, um, that you were also a super consumer of cereal, which kind of makes sense, yeah. but also cookies, candy, and a lot of other junk food that was out there. <laughs> and we were like, okay, what's going on here? And what it turns out was these people were using milk a little bit like a Catholic indulgence back in you know the day of like, if I drink this really expensive organic milk and that's really good for me, then I can indulge in another cookie or another candy bar or whatnot <laughs> there, right? And it'd be just people are in just endlessly interesting in that you don't want to make assumptions about them. But another one that I saw was um, uh, Generac is the leading manufacturer standby generators, which is, you know, if you, it's a hard sell, uh, Mike, like if to sell this product, it's like seven to $10,000 or more. And I'd be going to you and saying, and you might be aware of it because you're in the Northeast, but like, Hey, let me tell you about this product. That's super expensive that you've never heard of for a need you may never have. Right. right? Which is like what the power goes out and you need to, to kick in. But what they found were that there are people who were buying them proactively. Um, these were their versions of super consumers because not like you're going to buy multiple um, generators. But these people had two to three times more life insurance than they needed. Um, they had they were super consumers of vitamins and they were super consumers of refrigerators and freezers. Like they, they had multiple ones of them in their home. And they're kind of you, – you pull the lens back and you're like, oh, these are kind of proactive protection, Boy Scouts, you know, be prepared for the worst case scenario type folk. Right. And if you can actually I'm not saying that if you're in the life insurance business, you should move into vitamins. And stuff, but, <laughs> but it creates a different path forward that right. you might say, you know what, there are categories that are fairly closely related to what I do, maybe a radically different supply chain and a radically different business model and brand. But um, I might have some interesting insights about what else I could do. I might. Um, my, it's easier to sell to your existing consumers and to find entirely new ones. And that's an easier way to make a transition. Or frankly, I might have new partners that I might be able to tap into than I realized. And so, um, could you imagine a vitamin a CEO calling up an insurance CEO and say, let's share data. It seems kind of silly until you realize that, oh, maybe there's a there there to it. Right. right. And that you can monetize your assets in a way that you haven't, um, uh, been able to take advantage of there. Well, in our space, we do something similar with message mapping where we take and we go through, you know, go down the, the rabbit hole of <laughs> exploring how messages can be communicated in non-traditional ways. And, and a lot of what you're saying is saying, what are the things we're not seeing? What are the things that that we may assume and our assumptions are wrong? But as we go down that bunny hole, we find life insurance and vitamins might have a uh, coexistence together in a way that we didn't foresee. Absolutely. Yeah. No, I think it's a huge opportunity that most people aren't thinking about. And, you know, why would you like, how would you have ever gotten to that conclusion until you realize that, you know, consumers, um, you know, a, a lot of it might come down to how you treat your customers and consumers, right? right. Like, do you, and, and at some level, it's natural to assume that people like, oh, I make pens and therefore I only think about my people in the context of pens. But I've yet to meet someone whose life entirely consisted of buying and shopping for and using pens all day. Like they buy other <laughs> stuff too. Right? Yeah. And that if you see someone in the holistic 360 version of their lives, then, you know, it, it's it's a better you know, it's like how you would treat a friend. Like you would never treat a friend as just unidimensional. And I think the more that people start to treat their the people who buy from them as, you know, holistic real people and treat yeah. them as relationships versus transactions, then these insights tend to fall off the bone a lot better there. We've been talking about data. We've been talking about micro versus national and mega economies. How can we make decisions based on what data isn't telling us? We talked about the world of like big data. You, you were mentioning there what it tells us, but there's a lot that data doesn't tell us or the data that we have isn't a good picture of the reality. How can we go beyond data and make decisions in growth strategy? 
Yeah, it's it's um, one of the things that I always talk about is um, how uh, stories now are the new currency for growth. Yeah. And this idea, I mean, certainly data is important, but one of the things that I find is um, the easiest thing to do to start with this idea of super consumers is just uh, find look for them around you like you more than not. Um, people I find uh, know super consumers of their category uh, in their friends and family or even in their in their organizations and stuff. So just find a couple of them. And then the other th- the next thing that I say is that a super consumer, they're not born that way. They kind of evolve that way and therefore they have an origin story to find out. And so um, every super consumer kind of walks through five stages of development from I was a non-consumer. Uh, I don't have a need for that category to something happened in my life and now I need the product. And so um, I have I'm, I'm a I'm a light user of the category, but nothing more than that. And then you might actually find that you like the category. That's the third stage. Uh, and then if you start to knock on the door, super consumer ness is that stage four is like, ah, I can use this category for a completely different use case than I'd ever imagined. And then the fifth one is I love this category and I'm evangelizing it to other people because it's made my life so much better, right? And then that origin story I have found, no matter if it's in financial services or, you know, cheese or life insurance, like it, it, it happens kind of in a very similar fashion. Right. And that if you actually took the time and most people, when they talk to customers or consumers, they have very specific questions that they're asking. They're not asking to hear an open-ended story like this. Like this would be considered oftentimes a waste of time versus like, do you like my new packaging or do you like my new ad? <laughs> right? And so take the time and over coffee, over a beer, over a meal or whatever you need to do. Cause like, frankly, these people are, they're into the category, so they're happy to talk about it. But find their origin story. And the next part is to find out, um, you know, the nuggets that you get from the origin story. You know, are there other people who, if you shared that story with them, they would resonate with it? Um, and where do people fall out on that journey? And what could you actually do about it? And that if I lived in a world without data, um, th- that's how I would grow my business. I would find a couple of people who, you know, consume insane amounts of my category. And I would say, tell me your story. And it's usually a fantastic <laughs> ride. Like it's really, really, I've yet to find one that's not interesting at all. And so it's fun. It's interesting. And then within those those narratives of that journey, which may be nonlinear, you will find some parts of it resonate with a lot of other people and that that's your opportunity to really grow your business. And so the example that I give is like Velveeta was I'd written about in an HBR magazine, which is a very polarizing cheese, right? And so you either love it um, because you're used to using it for queso and Rotel and Super Bowl, or you're like, I would never go near something that's shelf stable. You know, cheese is supposed to be refrigerated. It's supposed to be from Europe and blah, 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 right? (laughs) Um, But what you find is that the journey of the people who are super consumers of Velveeta, um, they're not like people with tons of money. They're not people who have nine Super Bowl parties. They're people who have figured out new use cases for it and that the one that they figured out was – you know what? This is the best melting cheese bar none. Like there's no fancy cheese out there. Some may taste better, some may what are, are, are different textures, but the, this is the best melt. And if I need to get my kids to eat broccoli, this is the cheese to use because they won't eat broccoli on their own. And that because this melts particularly well, the cheese, the Velveeta gets into every nook and cranny of the broccoli stock there. And if I dump shredded cheese on it or a slice of cheese on it, it would look silly and unappetizing, right? Um, and so in order to get my kids to eat more broccoli, I use Velveeta. And that is the reason why I am a Velveeta super consumer. And so you, 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 you take that insight and that story and you take it to other people, some of whom might have said, I would never buy Velveeta. And then you say to them, do your kids eat as many vegetables as you would like them to do? And most people's hands would go up. Is it easy or have, you know, do you have a way of getting them to do that? They would say no. And then you say, if you could get your kids to eat more vegetables, would you buy Velveeta if you use it for this particular use case? It's a wildly different growth strategy than, hey, you know, why don't you throw another Super Bowl party in <laughs> Velveeta? Or, you know what? It's okay that it's refrigerated. And like, I mean, and that that story, as silly as it is for a Velveeta, I have found exists category by category all over the place there. You, you're talking about the super consumer, and 
other names that I've heard tossed around that people might identify that as maybe the brand advocate or the brand evangelist out there. Uh, I think of Malcolm Gladwell's The Tipping Point, and he talks mm-hmm. about uh, the different kinds of consumers. And and when you're building a brand, of course, he's coming from the br- uh, brand's side of things, uh, how you can engage them. When you think of a brand uh, super consumer or just a super consumer, how can they become, how can you convert them into that evangelist for you? Or, or are they already in that space and you just need to identify them to help support them uh, so they can support your, your company? Yeah, no, it, it's, um, it's interesting. Cause like most people don't have a, you know, a live database of category super consumers right. that they have readily available to them, or maybe it's not as, as maybe they're not aware of it, but you do what, here's the data that you have, right? You have the people who buy your stuff and potentially you might have data who that people who buy your stuff a lot and maybe they've advocated for you or they've liked your Facebook page or, you know, there, there's some sort of indicator that they, they, there's an emotional attachment to their, um, the thing that I always say there is um, f- uh, find the brand advocates that you have because you don't need that many. You just need a few because they have an outsized impact. But the important part is to separate them into two groups. There are brand advocates and evangelists that are also category super consumers, which is to say the simple question that you ask is, hey, uh, you know, Mike, you are my brand evangelist. You love my brand. Are there other brands in the category that you also feel similarly towards, okay. right? That you're also evangelizing. And, you know, if they say yes, a lot of brands will feel threatened by that. But those are your best friends yeah, <laughs> because <laughs> they love you, but they love other people. And so what it ends up happening is that they're smarter as a result of it. And they're going to tell you they have the ability to tell you the truth. Yeah. Right. Yeah. The moment you lose your way, if they are consuming somebody else's brands and products, they will tell you specifically why they have shifted away. And in fact, um, I, I mentioned the canary in the coal mine. Like these are the folks you got to keep tabs on. The moment that they um, start to find another brand that's interesting, you got to be asking questions. And importantly, the moment that they find another category that they find even more compelling, that's another important question to ask for. Now, the other group of people, brand evangelists and advocates that just like you, they're monogamous as it were, and they, they don't buy other brands. Like you, of course you, you love them, you welcome them, but you're not going to learn a ton from them. And so, you know, it's a, it's a little bit like a politician who has a lot of yes men and sycophants around them. Like it feels great, but you are really being set up for uh, failure because right. it's very easy to be blindsided uh, uh, regarding that. And so, um, again, you don't reject them, but you take their uh, comments and advice with a grain of salt um, and that the former group is the one that you actually learn from there. And so um, the important part is how do you find more? The way that you find more is listening to the first group. Uh, figuring out, um, not judging, but figuring out why you go to other brands um, instead of me from time to time. And why do you love the category? And why might you be migrating to other categories? And using that insight to actually um, find people who want to be like them. Because like that that's actually the part. Nothing gives these category supers more joy than to you know, share their joy of the category <laughs> and love with other people. Yeah. And, and like I, I always say like, uh, I've met tequila super consumers and they're fantastic. And there's people who like two to three times more of people who want to be tequila super consumers. Like they have that same desire, but they're not yet spending. And the reason why is they don't know what to do. Like they yeah. are confused by Añejo and Blanco and Reposado blends. And they're kind of stuck with a margarita in hand. Like, uh, <laughs> I have no idea how to get from A to B. Yeah. And a tequila super consumer is the best way to hold their hand and say, Hey, this is how you do it. Let me show you what works for me. And voila, you've converted somebody over that way. Like that's the way that I think marketing is supposed to head towards is, you know, equipping supers to connect with potential super consumers and let them do your work for you and celebrate them on the journey, like convincing somebody who, you know, doesn't drink tequila at all to enter the category is, is actually harder than it is to convince someone who's already doing it, but wants to do more and doesn't know how. Well, and it sounds like what you're saying is, is, uh, really getting on a strategy that can converts non-consumers or people that are interested and want to be passionate, but can't and converting them into kind of like sideline fans into the super consumers. Yes. That it's it's the easiest like layup that you can have there because they're they're right there, they're ready. And they're just either un 
they're confused. They might be a little scared there, or maybe there's an innovation problem that's there, right? It's like, well, I'd like to do it, but you know, you only come in, you know, huge sizes and the commitment to do so is, is ginormous. Right. And so I'm, I'm not going to jump in unless you find an easier way for me to try it out with it. And, um, the, like what I say is that if super consumers tend to be about 10% of the category in terms of people, the potential super consumers tend to be 20 to 30% of the category. And so it's, it's actually something that is really, they're a sizable population and, um, you just got to find people who are their, their level of affinity, emotion and affection for the category exceeds the current spending. And that's how you convince them. And actually, what's interesting is that they tend to be around other super consumers. So like one of the findings that I found data wise was um, this phenomenon that I call super geos or super okay. geographies. And then, yeah. you know, birds of a feather flock together. Right. So yeah. um, if you have market A with <clears throat> and this, you know, 10 super consumers and market B that also has 10 super consumers, but market A, the 10 supers all know each other or they're connected some way somehow that everybody else in market A spends a lot more than the everybody else in market B, which is the network effect or, you know, this, this whole thing of, you know, <clears throat> they have this outsized impact on everybody else. And so sometimes the best way to find potentials or look for where the supers are because they kind of radiate from there. Uh, you've written a book that goes deep into this. It's called Super Consumers, A Simple, Speedy, and Sustainable Path to Superior Growth. Uh, tell us a little bit about that book and what a reader may gain from it, who it's for, and and how it can help them in their business. Yeah, it, it's um, I, I think of it as um, uh, someone who is, um, I think – just either starting out as an entrepreneur or maybe you're in a mid-sized smaller business and you don't have the resources that big companies do and that it's ironically less for um, the big big clients that I've you know served over the history of my career um, just because what I find is that <clears throat> Um, a lot of, um, what I was doing in terms of big consulting projects, you know, I found a lot of value out of them. I think my clients got a lot of value out of them, but you know, more often than not, you see patterns and that there are patterns and themes and kind of, you know, lessons and laws of physics kind of like for, uh, for growth that are relevant to other people that if you don't have the resources to hire a big consulting firm, uh, this is the book for you, right? In that it's a really easy way to distill, you know, 85% of the answer down. Now, you know, there's a role for consulting firms and, you know, part of the reason why I left Cambridge a couple of months back was to, you know, just try to take these ideas and proselytize them so that more people could have, uh, benefit from them uh, without having to spend a lot of money on consultants and do so um, just because I, I didn't think it was necessary as much anymore, right? And that, so if, if you're, you know, just starting out, maybe you're not in a, heavy consumer uh, type business and you want to learn from it, or frankly, if you are in a big company, but you're a smaller brand or business and you don't have the, you know, get the attention or the resources that the big ones do, then this is a, another great um, asset for you because you get 85% of the knowledge and the learning without having to go through the whole rigmarole there. So it's, it's a little bit for the underdog is kind of uh, who I've written before. That's really cool. And then when they're ready for that next step, you have what you just mentioned, uh, Eddie Would Grow, which is a new company that yep. you've started around helping people with growth, growth strategy. Yeah, it, it's um, uh, basically um, I call it a think tank, think tank slash growth advisory firm in that um, I was uh, constantly uh, looking for, you know, whether at my at my old job at Cambridge or whenever I would talk to headhunters, I would always say, is there a role for me where I could spend half the time writing and doing podcasts like this one and or speaking and thinking about growth? and half my time as a senior partner. And they're like, mm, no, we kind of <laughs> want you to do the senior partner thing. <laughs> so yeah. I was like, all right, fine. And so I, I ended up doing my own thing because I, I really, um, I, I love, uh, again, as I mentioned at the outset, being in a growth situation is so much fun. And I think when companies do it right, there's a real humanity to it that I find really powerful about business then. You know, I mean, there are business people who grow by, you know, taking on debt and slashing costs and, you know, firing people and making it more profitable. I'm not as into that as it is just, let's just grow the sucker. Right. Yeah. And, um, what I have found is that, um, I think I can add more value to the business world writ large by writing about these ideas and having companies apply them on their own or the think the advisory part of what I do is, 
Um, you know, like I, I loved my experience at the consulting firms. And again, they have a great important role that they play, but it's a bit like going to a teaching hospital if you have a mysterious illness, right? Like yeah. you go to, you know, famous hospital X and you meet the chief of surgery and you're like, oh, this is great. And then you wake up and then you're like, oh, my procedure was done by first year med students. And that didn't make me super excited about that, <laughs> right? And so part of what I'm trying to do is like, look, I, I don't have a huge team. If you're looking for huge data, then I'm not the place to come to. But if you want, um, advice based on my experience and logic and some of these principles, then it's a lot easier for me as a solo guy to help out there. And of course, you know, if you need, you know, uh, more kind of data assets and resources, then I'm happy to send you back to my old friends or, you know, uh, figure out a solution in the middle. But what I have found more often than not is, um, a lot of my longtime clients are leaving big companies to go to smaller, more entrepreneurial, nimble places. And they don't really have the need for the huge data sets and consulting decks that I would create in my old days because there's less bureaucracy, right? They can make decisions faster. And I was like, you know what? I kind of want to hang out with my old friends and <laughs> I don't, you know, what's the point? Like if I know the answer, like what's the point of wasting time and everyone's money kind of proving it out to other people, let's just go do it. So that that's part of the whole rationale for Eddie would grow there. Yeah. And I think that's a beautiful place to be. I think of the companies that we work with and our customers and just how just having that, that ability to be innovative, rapid in making decisions and not weighed down by, oh, there's 20 hoops to, that you have to jump through before you make a movement and a shift and a decision. Yeah. Uh, I think a lot of people just like that ability to say, let's go for it. Oh, it's huge. And, and I think it's not only is it more fun uh, and they like it, but it's actually critical to winning going forward because, you know, speed is going to be that much more important. So before we jump into our rapid fire questions, I have one last question for you. And it has to do with that business that is uh, maybe a small business and they've become a medium sized business. Maybe they have 100, 150 employees and, and they want to continue growing, but they've hit that plateau. Or maybe it's an agency uh, that does marketing and they've gone from uh, a solopreneur and now they're at 15 or 20 people working for them and they've hit that plateau of growth and they've kind of grown stag stagnant. What would be a step that you would tell them to take so that they can continue their journey of making the business what they want it to be? Yeah, I, I would um, just start having those conversations, right? So find those super consumers of, um, you know, in a B2C situation of your category, if you're an agency or services, like find your favorite clients that not only have been good to you, but like, you know, these are people that if you weren't in business, you'd still gladly grab a beer with them or have dinner with them or whatnot, right? Like just find people that you would actually be friends with yeah. and just start having conversations with them about like, you know, um, kind of curious about, um, what life is like on your side when, you know, um, or, or, or just be, be that much more direct. If you're on an agency side of like, what are the most successful, you know, services that you ever, um, procured or hired? Right. And, uh, though they, they have, I, I guarantee you, you're, uh, in a B2B agency situation, they have that top of mind. They know, oh, the most successful things we've ever done were this, this, and that. Right. Yeah. And then you can kind of learn and say, well, what made it successful? What kind of backed up from there? Right. And so, um, I'm staying with the B2B situation. Like I remember, um, earlier on my career, um, I had made a recommendation to launch a new product and uh, it did not go well. And the CMO called me in a year later and kind of let me know that it did not go well and that I should feel ashamed about it because they lost money and this and that. And, and I did feel ashamed about it. I felt really <laughs> bad. And what it did was it, I, I had another bout of soul searching, but I, I actually took some time to calculate my batting average. I literally went back and took every project that I ever did and figured out like, um, you know, what do we charge? Um, did they learn something new? Did they get a new strategy out of it? Did they do something with it? And did they get a marketplace insight or uh, impact out of it? And was that impact, you know, meaningfully larger than what we charge them? And so in that exploration, I found that, um, uh, most of the time, almost all the time they, they learned something new, which felt good. And then most of the time they did something about it, had a new strategy or action, but only about a third of the time uh, was it the case that they actually had a marketplace impact that wow. was quantifiable. And wow. I was like, you know, that's 
good if I was playing baseball, but that, you know, I don't really feel good going into a new client situation. It's like, eh, you're a little less than a coin flip as to whether this will actually make a difference or not. And so I spent my career after that trying to figure out how to improve my batting average and money ball that, that, that number higher. And I think I've been able to do that. And what I realized in part was, I mean, the, the, the lessons that I took away were really quite fascinating in that it was, um, it sometimes had to do with what I was doing. Um, but sometimes it had to do with the clients themselves, right? right? That were they in a situation where they had autonomy to make decisions, were they backed by resources, um, or, or, or whatnot like that, and that, that, you know, it's not always the case that you have the luxury of choosing your clients, but just being mindful of like, when you find the right client, who's a strong leader, who has resources, like you got to double down on those projects and, and services and, you know, put more than what the contract stipulates because the, the payback of a testimonial that has had marketplace success is huge. Right. And then a third of the time it was not me, not the client, but it was a circumstance, right? The yeah. timing of the market and the competitive situation and, and whatever it was. And so what I began to do was, you know, I, I'm going to control what I can control and I'll only fuss about that. But when it's, it's a little bit like, you know, counting cards in Vegas, when the deck is hot because I have a good client and they have resources and the market is good too then I am going to put more of myself into that effort because I believe that there's a payoff at the back end of it. Yeah. And it's not to say when those things aren't true that, you know, I do less than a very, very, very good job with it there. But, you know, like in every situation, you know, when you should double down and, you know, when versus when I'm going to do what I've been uh, hired to do, I'm going to do it well, but, you know, I'll be cautious about, you know, investing above and beyond there. So I, I think that's a B2B scenario, but I actually think it's the similar situation with the consumer set. Like, you know, if you got a super consumer and they have a problem with your product and want to return it, take it back and, you know, replace it no matter what the cost is. It's, it's really important right. to overinvest in those situations. And, uh, but, you know, not do it foolishly where you're just, you know, chasing after people who may not um, ultimately be with you for the long haul there. That's really good. How can someone connect with you or find your book? Yeah, you can find my book on Amazon um, is the easiest place to find it or uh, at HBR. And so if you do get it there and you do like it, please leave a review. That's all, always uh, super helpful. Uh, otherwise, you can find me on Twitter uh, at Eddie Wood Grow, uh, E-D-D-I-E Wood Grow, uh, or my um, my website and email are, um, you know, eddiewoodgrow.net or eddie at eddiewoodgrow.net. Let's jump into our final section, which is rapid fire questions. Sure. What is one step you would tell someone with a big idea and dream and they simply don't know where to start? Um, I would start with um, those share that dream with a super consumer. And, and, and what, what I find important about that is, you know, you find somebody who is similarly passionate and very much a big spender in the category. And I think a lot of entrepreneurs or leaders with a big vision and dream, you know, the, you're kind of, you know, uh, kindred spirits there. But you got to find somebody there who is a super consumer and they'll do a couple of things. They'll either validate your idea. Oh, they'll refute it, which is important to you know get that feedback early before you invest too much of yourself in <laughs> yeah. it. But more than likely, they'll build on it and help you enhance it in a way that you hadn't seen before. And so that vision um, and dream that you have, talk about it with other people. Otherwise, it'll stay a dream and not a reality. So talk about it with supers, build on it, refine it, um, keep talking to them about it because you know what? They're always going to love talking about it and they're always going to want to help you make it better. You've worked with a lot of companies globally. You've traveled the world and spoken at tons of different events uh, throughout the world. What's one area in the world you want to see change? Hmm, that's a great question. Um, I would like to see... Um, that's a very, very good question. I would like to see... Um, more of the stories that I saw in Africa and Asia in particular be told back in the U.S. because it's it's in the, in the Western world and that, you know, um, what I find is that adversity leads to great innovation and lack of and scarcity actually um, leads to very creative and ingenious solutions. And um, from my times there, I've seen some amazing businesses that have emerged and, you know, it, it's 
traditionally the case that ideas they you know tend to be they emanate from the U.S. and the Western world and go outward there. But I actually think that um, you know the world that we live in now today. The odds are stacked in the favor of the small and the nimble and the agile and that more of those stories are actually happening in the rest of the world and actually have quite a bit of relevance uh, back in the U.S. there. Wow, that's really cool. Somebody's got to figure out a way to tell those stories. Yes. (laughs) That's for sure. You have done so much in your life already. What do you want your legacy to be? Yeah, you know, I I, I want my legacy to be – let's see Another good question. It's it's one around um, uh, there's that Pixar movie Ratatouille. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, that yeah, one. yeah. And the 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 one of the the head chef Gusto, I think his book is um, the whole idea of anyone can cook, which is, I think, um, a controversial statement in light of you know the other kind of you know old cuisine chefs who are like, no, not everyone can cook and, <laughs> and the like. But like, I think this idea of again the underdog and the, like my greatest joys in business have been categories where people are like there's n- nothing going on here nobody cares about this and there's no hope and then you find out no yep you know office products and staplers they're actually a bunch of crazy super consumers who love this category to death and they spend a lot and they want more and and then you find these amazing growth strategies that occur from you know uh, flipping conventional wisdom on its head and so if uh, I would love my legacy to be anyone can grow, kind of building off that anyone can cook, and that if you find your super consumers, you know, uh, find that category doubling vision, and then you know, create a new category to get after it. Like um, I, I actually think it's not easy, but the formula is actually straightforward, and um, uh, there's nothing more uh, enjoyable than when people take something that everyone has dismissed and overlooked and say, "Oh, no, there's a there there." <laughs> That's really cool. I like that a lot. Who or what inspires you? Yeah, I mean, the, the um, there's a the name of my enterprise, Eddie Wood Grow, is actually based off of um, a phrase from Hawaii. So that I was born and raised in Hawaii, and there's a phrase there called Eddie Wood Go. And it's named after a gentleman by the name of Eddie Aikau. He was a famous Hawaiian waterman, a big wave surfer, lifeguard, and, and navigator. And um, he ended up um, losing his life uh, on the Hokulea, which was a, 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 an effort to recreate the ancient Hawaiians' um, celestial navigation that they did, kind of wow. used just the stars. And um, he ended up uh, – their, 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 their ship ran into trouble and capsized off of Oahu, and he ended up swimming um, to shore to get help. And uh, they never saw him again. And so Eddie would go is the phrase that's named after his the, there's a very famous big wave surf competition in Waimea that they only hold when the waves are big enough. And it's by invitation. So they only invite the top 30 best big wave surfers there. And the phrase is Eddie would go because he would, you know, drop in on the biggest waves, but also he would go for help. And so to me, it stands for courage, excellence and generosity and you know, it's, it's part of the inspiration. You know, I figured Eddie would grow. Um, it would be meaningful from for people from Hawaii or surfers to know that story. ESPN actually did a nice 30 for 30 on Eddie Aikau. Uh, or it would be at least not boring and make for an interesting conversation starter. So. I'm really glad you shared that story. I had no idea. It's really cool. Yeah. What are you currently reading, watching, or listening to? Um, I am listening, uh, I'm a huge podcast super consumer. So, um, I, the, the, what I, what I love about it is I, I think the diversity of podcasts that you can get to, um, and that are beyond business so that you can learn and apply them elsewhere, I think is really fun. And so, uh, business wise, um, you know, uh, there's a, a good friend of mine, Christopher Lockhead, who who runs a podcast called Legends and Losers. And what I love about it is that half the time is spent talking about all the failures that people have had over the years, <laughs> oh, wow. and, and the different trials and tribulations that they've had. And you know, you know, he's obviously bringing on guests who've had, you know, um, meaningful success in the marketplace. But I just appreciate, you know, Christopher is a great guy who um, wrote a great book with some friends called Play Bigger. It's done very well. Yeah, published in HBR, and and he's dyslexic and he's had his own challenges in life. And I just appreciate how he embraces um, losing in, in regards because I think you just learn so much from it. And, you know, you, you just it's nice to be around people who are willing to talk about their failures and, you know, because it, it kind of reveals that you're not so stuck up about it. Um, but whatever success that you might have had. But then 
beyond his podcast, I think um, I listen to a lot of the ones on the ringer, um, just sports and pop culture and food. He's like, I think of the ringer as a bunch of super consumers, be it sports or, you know, TV shows or movies or, and like a lot of, like there's one that they have called the watch with uh, Andy Greenwald and Chris Ryan that I am not a movie expert. Like when they go into the, the technical things, my eyes glaze over, but <laughs> they're really good friends and they really love movies. And I just enjoy the banter. Like, I just think it's fun, even though I don't get most of it. Um, and then uh, I'm a big fan of, you mentioned Gladwell, his uh, revisionist yeah. history podcasts are great learning, great fun. And, and I think that he has what I always have aspired to, which is um, the ability to flip conventional wisdom on its head. So that's really cool. I end every episode with this final question. Yep. What is one dream you're still wanting to fulfill in your own life? I am trying to figure out how to get home. So I'm a homesick born in Hawaii guy, lives in Chicago. My, um, my wife's parents are here and my kids are here. So it's going to be hard to kind of move back. But like, um, the part of what I've always enjoyed is, um, I think there's a real beyond just the normal things of what people know about Hawaii, but there's a real, um, special peacefulness that's there that I feel, um, as you know, kind of intertwined with the, the ocean and the land there. And my hope is to spend, go back home and spend more time that my parents are there, but also figure out a way to, um, run more of my enterprise out of there. Um, not just because it's cold in the wintertime in Chicago, <laughs> but like, you know, I, I just think this idea of like, I'm amazed at where technology has gotten us to yeah. and the ability to communicate and that there should be an ability to, to be able to work wherever you want to work and wherever you gives you joy to be successful and productive, but also not compromise, you know, family and friends and kind of the things that give you personal joy there. So I'm trying to figure out a way to design my life in a way that I can do that. And so that it's, it's an inspiration to others, whether it's, you know, Hawaii or their version of Hawaii, that they can find a way to kind of break all the compromises in their lives too. That's really cool. Eddie, thanks so much for taking time out, sharing your story and such incredible insights into the world of growth and business and on the bigger scale, just life in general. Oh, this was tremendous. I really, really enjoyed it. And thanks for having me on, Mike. I want to thank today's guest, Eddie Yoon, for taking time out to share his story. You can swing on over to eddiewoodgrow.net to find out more about him. Or you can swing on over to jumblethink.com where you'll find his bio, links to his social channels, his website, and also how you can get his book. Our guest on Monday's episode is Michael Gebbin. He is the founder and CEO of Jumpstarters. He has worked with people like Tony Robbins, Pat Flynn, Tim Ferriss, and Richard Branson. In the episode, we talk about clarity. We talk about getting untrapped and making your own way. We talk about metrics for success and what success looks like and so much more. It's a really fun episode. Make sure you check that out this Monday. At JumbleThink, we believe everyone is created for purpose and destiny, that they're unique and special. And we want to help you on your journey. Maybe you have a big idea and dream and you simply don't know where to start. Or maybe you feel alone and you just need someone to talk to. Well. We're here to help you. Drop us an email, hello at jumblethink.com. We'd love to start the conversation and help you on your journey to create the world you want to live in. Thanks again for tuning into this episode. It's been a lot of fun. I hope it's encouraged you. Now get out there and do something amazing. Les mères de famille, les enfants, peuvent également prendre un moment revitalisant dans quelques mois. Lorsque vous aurez bien saisi la technique et que vous serez maître de votre corps, vous pourrez vous décontracter même en travaillant. As humans, we're naturally driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search, match with Indeed. When I was looking to hire someone, it was so slow and overwhelming. I wish I had used Indeed. If you need to hire, you need Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And Indeed doesn't just help you hire faster. 93% of employers agree Indeed delivers the highest quality matches compared to other job sites 
according to a recent Indeed survey. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash podcast. That's Indeed.com slash podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Okay, round two. Name something that's not boring. A laundry? Ooh, a book club. Computer solitaire, huh? Ah, oh, sorry. We were looking for Chumba Casino. That's right. ChumbaCasino.com has over 100 casino style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. ChumbaCasino.com. No purchases, over by law, 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details.